Hello and welcome to the Immigrant in Corporate podcast. My guest today is Victoria Shiroma Wilson, EDD. Victoria is passionate about empowering others to design sustainable strategies towards transformation that is in alignment with their values, cultural identities, and unique dreams. Growing up biracial at the intersection of multiple distinct cultures, languages, and nationalities adds dimension and lived authority to Victoria's understanding of societal dynamics and the importance of understanding how one's unique voice can be a competitive advantage in today's interconnected world. To feed our insatiable curiosity, Victoria earned a doctorate from the University of Southern California. She serves as an executive coach for socially conscious leaders and design courses on identity, culture, career, and leadership. Victoria is one of the amazing women that shared their stories in my book, Thriving in Intersectionality, and she shares insights from her experiences working within corporate America. Hello, and welcome to the Immigrant Incorporate podcast. On this podcast, you will learn from lived experiences how to thrive in the corporate workplace as an immigrant. My name is Lola Adeyemo. I am the CEO of EQI Mindset and the founder of the nonprofit Immigrant Incorporate Inc. I work with organizations to build inclusive workplaces. On this podcast, I will be amplifying immigrant voices from within corporate organizations through solo episodes as well as guest interviews. It is a global world of work, and I'm very sure you can learn a thing or two from my guests who are originally from different parts of the world and their experiences working in the corporate workplace. Welcome to the Immigrant Incorporate podcast and thanks for joining me today. Oh my goodness, well, it, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> and it's been, it's been a journey for you and I, and, and we'll get to that in a little bit, uh, because part of the project for me that launched this podcast is my book. And you also had a similar book that mm-hmm. you featured me and I featured you in my book because we have similar topic and passion. So I'm mm-hmm. excited that, you know, it's almost like we've been on this train for a long time. <laughs> yes, we have. Yes. And I, and I feel like our, our, our adventure is just beginning in a sense. Exactly. Cause I can't say it's coming to an end. It really is just yeah. beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, I'm, I'm excited to, document an official conversation for my podcast audience with you, even though you do have a little bit of your story in my upcoming book, Thriving in Intersectionality. So if you could start by giving us a little bit of your background, what's your immigration story? Yeah. And so in many ways, I've had this really unique experience coming to the United States. Um, My situation, I would say is unique, but then at, at the same time, it followed this typical trajectory of an immigrant story. Um, and depending on somebody's perspective, they might see like a lot of similarities and it might resonate with their own stories or might be slightly different. But um, I can share with you a little bit about just overall, like what brought me here, right? So I actually spent uh, my, my childhood, I was born and raised in Japan. Um, I'm biracial. 
Um, my father is Japanese. My mother is American. So even living in this country that I spent all of my childhood in, um, I was always kind of perceived as an outsider. But during that time, I also went to an American high school and I had American friends. Right. And I, and I just remember at that time in, in uh, growing up, I mean, they would always talk about how wonderful America was, especially since they had this wonderful creation called malls that <laughs> I had never experienced before, you know, growing up in like this little, this little island here. And, but when I came to the United States, I came to the United States for the first time when I was in university, you know, to attend university, I would say. And I was, I went from a semi-tropical island, tiny little island with maybe about a million people total population to, you know, the Midwest, right? I was in Wisconsin and it was, I went from, you know, just balmy weather to just bitter cold, right? But what was really interesting about that experience for me, and I can only say in hindsight, I see how it kind of followed this typical immigrant journey because I was dropped into the middle of the Midwest and I immediately experienced tremendous culture shock. Right. And even though I did have the privilege and the advantages of like speaking English with a Midwestern accent, what was going on inside of me was just like I really was having a hard time reading culturally what was going on around me. Um, I really had a hard time like interacting with uh, the people around me. And the other thing that I mean, in hindsight, I realized is that all the Americans that I encountered were in Japan, right? At, you know, when I was growing up. So right. they had the experience of immigrating, right? And so they could kind of understand those nuances. But when I went to the United States, I was confronted with people who had never even left their small towns, right? right? So how I interacted with them and how they interacted with me came up with like a number, number of challenges overall. Right. Um, right. And and where you grew up, you, from your perspective growing up, you thought, you know, this is pretty diverse. I'll be fine. Right. You grew up, what part of Japan did you grow up? Uh, I grew up on an island called Okinawa. So there's Okinawa. a large U.S. military population there. But then you also realize that there's so many cultures even within the United States. Right. So right. I, I got to meet people from all over the United States. And it was a very much an integrated society with the military right so um then you go you go to some place like where you're in the midwest and it's like wow you don't have maybe that perspective like a lot of the people that i encountered just didn't have the perspective of understanding that there was this world outside of the state let alone world outside of the united states right so so you you had more exposure back home yes. <laughs> than yes. you did when you came to the United States. And, yes. and that's important because for me, one of the things that I talk about is I thought I spoke English and I've watched Hollywood movies, you know, so I'm mm -hmm. fine. We mm -hmm. have all of these ideas that it's not really until you get in there. Right. And, and depending on where you go, right, what part of mm -hmm. the country you go, your experience will also be different. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that I, you know, again, looking back on it, I can see with clarity now that I didn't see at the time was that I really did have the same experiences like an international student did. Right. But I wasn't classified as an international student, you know, um, just because through my mother, I had citizenship. Um, but when I came to the United States and then I was going and I was just struggling my first year, you know, with all the different cultures uh, or just this new culture that I was just immersed in. Um, I think I could have benefited from like having the knowledge to seek out maybe the international student organization right. or something like that. Okay. It, because 
with those resources. So that's one thing I would say is like, seek out those resources if you can. Right. I didn't even know that piece, right? When you were talking about coming into school, I'm mm-hmm. thinking, oh, international student as resources, but you're right. right. You didn't come in as an international student. You came in as a resident. W- so, and of course, going to a big state school like Wisconsin, I was, you know, it was just kind of a check in the box. So I was classified right. as a domestic student. So, you know, they thought, oh, well, you know, the months you move into your dorm, you're done. <laughs> but then that's right. when my, my challenges began. <laughs> right. So did you eventually discover that you needed the international student office or is this something that is was only advertised for yeah. the international student? So at the time, it was something that was only advertised for the international students. right? And so I think about now, knowing who I am many decades later, you know, I, I think I would have benefited. Like if I had known that, I, I probably should have just sought that those resources out. Absolutely. And I think I, and I think the points you're making is important because um, I had not thought about it from the perspective you did, right? So I've spoken with a lot of people that came in from other countries through the school route. And it's usually, you know, the school experience is way better than, the school integration experience is better than, uh, corporate America integration. Yes. And and it's because of exactly what you said. The International Students Office acknowledges that you're coming from somewhere else. And so they provide uh, support for you from that perspective. But what happens when I'm an immigrant because I moved from somewhere else, I grew up somewhere else, but technically I'm not, you know, an international student uh, by legal classification. Right. And I would say that the probably that population is bigger than one suspects, you know, just due to the number of expatriates um, that yeah. live all over the world, as well as military, as well as um, folks who just are like what they call third culture kids. Like, and yeah. you know, they yeah. and we're just kind of this unique classification, but we we don't have the numbers at any one institution that a lot of. Um, and I think there's more awareness around that now. Versus when I was at in university, but yeah, it was one of those. It was one of those struggles. Yeah, and 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 I think we would we would talk about that further too as we as we go into you know your entry into corporate America, how that relates because I'll I'll, I'll love to dive into how it compares with my experience coming into corporate America when it was a couple of months after graduation, but my my status had already changed to green card. Mm-hmm. So legally, I didn't need the network and I didn't have the network of other international students, other immigrants who were building a community and supporting each other, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, um, my entry into corporate America was, that's a whole nother story <laughs> that I'm happy to <laughs> okay, share with you let's, as well. Let's move there. I think yeah. that's the next, next part. Um, uh, what was that like for you? How, how long did it take for the school? And then what was the process of getting into corporate America? Yeah. So I was one of those people that I thought I was going to actually end up in government service. And I remember going straight from undergraduate to graduate school on the East Coast and feeling like I'm going to be serving you know, the United States. Um, and I ended up landing, I would say, my what is it called dream internship at the time with the State Department. Um, and in hindsight, I think it would have been a gr- you know, it would have been a great career to have. But in my young 20s, I was also, I would say, feeling like I wanted more of an adventure. Right. So through a number of twists and turns, I finished graduate school and actually moved out to California um, and started my career, official career in technology. And um, and I realized that being in Silicon Valley, right, 
being in tech, that in of itself has its own culture, its own ecosystem, its own ethos, right? Um, and its own hierarchy in terms of the ways, you know, you have to get things done. And I just remember, like, as I was getting started, I, I started in a number of startups. And I just remember, like, feeling though I had to assimilate pretty quickly. And again, you don't have those resources that, you know, to ease your way into something, you know, you just, you have to hit the ground from the first day you're on the job in a sense. So yeah. And in some, in some respects, I felt like I couldn't really be myself, right? I actually had to turn on the side of myself that didn't come naturally to me. I had to be logical. I had to be, you know, I, I actually had to be very direct in my communication. I had to um, feel like I had to be a lot more aggressive than I naturally am. Yeah. And so how did you end up on the West Coast? What's, um, and what is the difference in that experience, right? The cultural, yeah. uh, geographical culture within the U.S.? Well, coming from, you know, I ended up getting a glimpse into government, right? And okay. the, the and the, one of the main reasons why I decided to leave government um, is that as I was rounding out this um, internship experience, um, you know, my mentor was just like, well, you know, you're certainly welcome to pursue a career here, but somebody's going to have to retire or die before you can get a job here. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe in like 15 years, you can actually, you know, get a promotion. And I was thinking to myself, and I, and I have to admit, I wanted a calling and not a career. And I was fe feeling very impatient about it. Right. So um, my boyfriend, who became my husband, at the, you know, later became my husband, actually said, hey, well, I'm moving out to California. Um, he ended up getting a job in tech. So um, so I followed him out there and, you know, and I had to like search, you know, without any community, without any network to to find something. And so, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting it was it kind of an interesting process. Um, it was just kind of like. I'll try anything. So I ended up, um, my first job was working at a startup in marketing. Um, and um, it was, yeah. And from there, I, I felt like I learned a lot, but it was also not, it didn't come very naturally in terms of like what I felt like my skill set was. Right, right. We, yeah, that's, I mean, when we look at our stories, I, I just see a lot of parallel. And I also see a lot of what we in the way we can see it now with our experience, we actually are privileged if we think about it because uh, similar to you, my husband was already living in California and that was why I didn't look for a job in Texas. That's why I came to San Diego. So I pretty much left the community that I already had and I came to this brand new city where I don't know anybody. I don't have a job lined up yet and I'm job searching by myself. Right. If I was still in Texas where I went to grad school, I could at least maybe still leverage some of the resources on my campus. Um, but again, I, I feel like it's also a privilege because I finished my degree in biotechnology, but I also knew I didn't want to be at the bench. So mm -hmm. A lot of the people in my program were trying to look for yeah. jobs in the lab. Yes. Yes. And yeah. I was trying to get into corporate and I, you know, San Diego is a biotech hub. There's a lot of companies there. So I think it's easy for us to look back and see all of these reasons why, you know, we're privileged, we have opportunity. Uh, but the reason why these conversations are really important is because we don't know who else is out there that is kind of locked into something because of the environment, uh, because of what you see, because of what you observe. And, and so, yeah, so let's talk about that. Like being in the workplace, uh, when you eventually switch to corporate America, based mm -hmm. on your background, as mm -hmm. you know, an immigrant, and then based on your experience in college, right. 
let's unpack how that helped or didn't at work, right? What, what were some yeah. of the challenges that you um, noticed at work? So it's, it's interesting. Um, so one of the things that I had to confront Right. And, 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 and in fact, it's, it was definitely not a very linear process. It was a very messy process for me internally. Right. Um, it, it is the whole notion of what was it? The, the social contract that I thought existed. So for example, like one of the things I see a lot of my, my clients, if I coach, um, one of the things they, that they struggle with is that, you know, they, there are these messages that you internalize through your entire life. Right. Um, and I, and some of the messages that I internalized that my parents would always say, like, you go to as good of a school as you can, you get a good job and then everything else is going to like line up in life. Right? right. And honestly, it didn't line up that cleanly for me. Right. <laughs> because I was building my own self-awareness about like what, right. what, what it is that I wanted. And so yeah, you could have stayed in government and had that. Remember our parents yeah. in their time, you get a job and you stay there. Exactly. For a long time, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it took a lot, a long time for me to realize that. So, you know, then like looking at another, you know, looking one layer down and understanding like what motivated my parents, my, my you know, my parents were kind of like, especially my father was that, you know, he was, he survived World War II, right? So being safe, being secure, having a secure paycheck was a big motivator for him. For him and also the world you know like if you think about the post-war generation in japan it was all about sacrifice so that right. the next generation could really thrive right? right and 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 get the get the basic material needs right that right. they didn't have growing up and so that's the messages that i kept on internalizing and so i felt for me and i see this a lot with actually like a lot of my clients whose parent who have had similar situations the stakes seem higher Right. right. It's like, gosh, you know, they've sacrificed so much for me that I need to go and get a good job, have this good life so I can help you know, show them or anybody else that I've, I've kind of made it. And so, right. yeah, that was always a and, challenge. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's, that's the danger is that we don't feel like we have the luxury to explore where our passions are like to find your voice or to find yourself. All of those things sounds like lazy terms. Like you just need to get a great job that pays well, work hard and get paid. Yeah. And I think um, it can also get wrapped up into logic. Like, you know, uh, you know, so back to what you said, it's like, it seems extravagant in a sense to, to say, well, I, there's some, you know, I know that my skill set or my passions or my interests are elsewhere than what has been prescribed for me. Right. But one of the things that I try to help people understand is that you can actually work with both of those contexts. Right. And then so what's you know, what's how do we design something for you that's going to work to preserve your relationships? And then but at the same time, you know, help you thrive in the workplace. Right. Right. And, and we'll come back to your current work in a minute, because I think this is part of where the intersection of our work and our book mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, kicks in. But I want yeah. to go back, take you back into the corporate workplace, because I know yeah. you had some pretty fun experiences um around different areas um yeah. you know leadership hierarchy are there right. some of those key areas that you want to discuss or stories that you want to share around your experiences yeah yeah i mean there's a couple of stories that i can i can share but i think the one thing that i mean one where i think i started and i'm going to come back to is the whole notion of the social contract right so another 
thing that I internalized from my parents was specifically like, Hey, you know, somebody, you know, if you work hard and do your best, then you're going to get rewarded for it. That was another kind of myth, I would say, that I internalized quite a bit. Um, and so there, and I call it the myth of the benevolent manager, right? That, you know, that if you work hard, then you're going to be recognized for it. Then your manager's going to, you know, say, okay, you're ready for a promotion and, and things like that. And I think one of the things that we all, you know, if you have that type of a manager, good for you, that's fantastic, right? Um, but for a lot of us, we didn't have that experience. Like it was never that perfect. So trying, so I just remember like putting a lot of faith in my managers. Um, and I just remember there were times I, I would say I had some managers that kind of misread me, like they didn't understand me culturally. They didn't, and so um, I remember I, during a, a performance review, I had a manager tell me specifically, like you, you have very low self-confidence. And I was just like, first of all, this is a performance review, right? <laughs> you know, but, but you know, rather than the character descriptions. And so that's, uh, so it was really fascinating to find, you know, and as this manager was telling me, I, I apologized a couple of times because what there was a, there was a project that fell behind. And so what I did was I actually took the responsibility for the project. I thought I was d- demonstrating leadership qualities, right. By saying, Hey, you know what, this was my fault. I take the responsibility for it, but, and here's what I think we can do. But the fact that I apologized, according to that person, they interpreted that as a sign of weakness, right? And they, and they felt like, well, you don't have self-confidence if you're apologizing for your mistakes, right? And again, I, I, it took me a while to unpack that, but I, you know, I think the conclusion that I've reached is that's a matter of perspective, Right. right. What is considered strength versus weakness and all that. And I think that even in some environments that would be perceived as a strength in other environments, obviously with the one I was in, it was perceived right. as very much a weakness. Right. Right. And, and where the cultural background, um, I think comes in is that you take these people and you look to them as I need to listen to you. I need to believe what you say because you are a manager. So exactly. you are in a position of authority and, there's, there's just a different culturally, there's a different expectation with that yes. dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another piece of culture that I did internalize as well. A cultural, uh, you know, assumptions that I internalized as well was the fact that, you know, if that manager was there, they were there for a reason. Right. And I would say that the society in which I came, managers have a very different level of responsibility too. It's like they, they are responsible for taking care of their folks. And right. Again, right. a very different social contract from the one that I was in. So right. that was, it right. was a very big learning experience for me. You are turning all of those learnings into something <laughs> that would be really helpful to other people in, in your situation or that were in your situation at that time. Um, so how did you transition? So, because that's another thing. So you were in corporate America and now you are doing work that still impacts those in corporate America, those individuals. So tell us about what you are doing now and, and how you got here. Yeah, absolutely. So after a number of uh, failed startups, I literally, there was one moment I actually had this epiphany. I was, I was like, you know what? I really am passionate about helping people. And then, you know, like when you have those moments of epiphany, those moments of clarity, then all of like the facts you know, just come and fall into place. I'm like, yeah, I was always the person that everybody was in my cube, you know, at, at cubicle at work because they wanted to talk to me about like what was going on with their career or what was going, you know, like how to nego- navigate a, like a diplomatically tricky situation, you know, or politically 
um, tricky situation at work. And so I'm like, you know what, I want to actually dedicate more of my professional life to helping others that way. So I went back to grad school. I ended up having a, uh, you know, getting my, uh, my master's degree in counseling. And then I have my doctorate in education and all around really like how to, how to integrate like cultural identity into kind of like making positive change. So a lot of what I do is I work with multicultural leaders to really understand the full extent of like all the influences that their culture and identity, you know, um, play in their leadership and then how they can actually leverage that as a really positive thing um, right. in, in the workplace. Right. And you, you do share some of those frameworks in your upcoming book, right? I do. Can you tell us, yes. about, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, um, and in fact, it, it's funny because, and I think you and I can laugh about how like our, the titles of our books have like evolved <laughs> over the course of the last few months. But my, my final, final title is Exceptional Futures, The Power of Identity to Design Positive Change. And in it, there are these frameworks and these models for really being clear about like, what's a guiding question like? And so for somebody, it could be like, how do I become a, you know, more, a better leader? right? That could be your guiding question. And so I work through a number of like uh, frameworks and exercises and elements to help you really get that clarity for yourself and, dis- and understand what type of change you want to make, right? Whether it's within yourself, maybe within your team or within a bigger system, and then, um, and then put a plan of action together to be able to do it. Right. Okay, well, we're looking forward to getting a copy of that. I'm looking forward yeah. to my copy. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, I know. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be. Yep. <laughs> um, but so, if you if you look back at your experience within corporate America now, now mm-hmm. not from the perspective of the work you are doing now, mm-hmm. which is you know you're you're packaging all of those experiences. If you look at your experience within corporate America, do you think or how do you see that your background? the way you were raised, the environment you were raised, how do you think it helped you survive some of the scenarios you had there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because um, I was reflecting on that earlier. Um, I do feel like what I do bring to the, te- you know, the, the picture is I do have this um, you know, tremendous work ethic, right? I don't give up easily. And in fact, I think some people have called me tenacious in a good way as a result of that, right? Because I'm like, I'm not willing to just give up on a problem easily. And I think that my being a being an immigrant and having uh, challenges around just integration was always like helped me along that that path. Um, I think the other thing is loyalty, right? Um, the type of bonds that we form with others as immigrants um, is different. I would say from a from something that's a little bit more transactional. Um, so that was one of the things that I think hurt me a lot. Like I felt emotionally just sometimes bruised because sometimes others would have this like more of a transactional nature to working, you know, the work relationship. And, but I always saw myself as being a little bit more like loyal. Right. And it's helped me and it's also challenged me in some ways, but I always prefer to see that as an asset. Right. Right. Well, I think you've shared a lot with us. Thank you for sharing about just that. I think you, you opened my mind really to that different side of being an immigrant student is what I would call not necessarily the typical classification that we use Mm -hmm. for international students and my new nonprofit immigrants incorporate Inc. Part of the things I want to do beyond my book, uh, Mm -hmm. is also provide resources for international students and Mm -hmm. and immigrants in the workplace, as well as HR and 
you know, recruiters in, mm -hmm. in corporate America. So I think you, you touched on something really important, which is how we classify people and then how we determine who gets what resources. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I would also say that there's a lot, and my focus is on identity. There's this tendency to have, like, trying to have these neat descriptions, you know, right. by putting labels on things. Like, as an immigrant, you must have this experience. And to understand that the, the immigrant experience is so diverse, right? Yes. And and how we see, our, see ourselves and see the world in terms of our own lens of identity is very important right. in this whole process. Right, right, right. And, and, and it's a it's an important conversation to be having now. I think the work you're doing with identity and, and designing futures and, and what I'm doing with empowering immigrants in the workplace, I think it's all timely because we are talking of all of these diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, and mm -hmm. we are trying to change systems and change organizational culture, but it's also getting giving people a deeper understanding of what we're trying to do here you know it's not putting people in neat little boxes every Absolutely. individual is going to be very different yeah and i think what i'll add to that is that for those organizations that want to move from a knowledge to an innovation based culture right um really being able to understand and leverage the uniqueness of you know of each of, of your employees is going to be your differentiating factor, right? Having people feel like they belong, having people feel like they can actually have a voice to be right. able to help grow and develop new markets, perhaps, or even um, develop new technologies. Um, it's that's important. I think a lot of organizations are not tolerant of like what comes with it. Some, there's this perce uh, perception of messiness, right? right? That like, oh well, you know, it's not it's not unified. And I'm like, well, there was a generation of unification in that way, but that was also sometimes assimilation, right? Yes. And now we want to try to figure out how to leverage all these wonderful, unique perspectives because that's really where growth is going to happen. Right, right. Thank you. All right, to to wrap up, I like to ask a final question. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, two, let, let's, let's talk about the one first, uh, takeaways. If anybody in your situation, right, somebody moving from Okinawa, from a mix, if you were to talk to your younger self now, mm -hmm. is there anything <laughs> in terms of resources or advice or insights or final thoughts? That yeah, you yeah. I would say it's it's interesting because I think for some for those of us, if I had to go back to my 19-year-old self or my 18-year-old self and give myself some advice, and also anybody who's coming to America for the first time, I would just say, you know, spend a little bit of time really investing in the relationships around you, right? Those and then what I mean by that is not necessarily people who are exactly like you or come from the same place and all that, but people who really, you know, really get you and respect you and respect really the potential that you have. Right. And so you may, and it might take you out a little bit out of your comfort zone to be able to do that, but really investing those relationships will be something that you can, you know, that's like a foundation that you're going to build for life. Right. Um, I think the other thing that I will also say is build that awareness so that you can really be able to differentiate the kind of like the myths of the social contract from what the reality is. Um, one of the things I always tell my clients um, is this whole notion of take a step back, right? Some of the advice that like, let's say your aunties or your, you know, your parents are giving you, you know, um, 
might not be relevant for what's really happening in the world that you're trying to enter into, right? The world has evolved. So, so, but understand like where that's rooted. Sometimes it's tradition, sometimes it's safety. So understand what the underlying dynamic is so that you can, you can respectfully work with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, there's, that makes complete sense. I, I think there's some work that we should do. Um, we're not putting all the pressure on the immigrant or you as a person. Of course, there's changes with the organization that needs to happen. Uh, right. But uh, there's also that realization that we also have some work to do on mm-hmm. our own part. Yes. All right. The other one that I want to wrap up with that I was eager to get to is around food. Ooh. My guests are from different countries. So, and we all like food. And food is the way to break the ice and get to meet people. So if you were to share a dish from Japan, mm-hmm. from Okinawa in the U.S., a dish, a snack, tell mm-hmm. us something that comes to mind and why. So I'd say the snack that I, or actually the dish that I miss the most, um, there's two of them actually. Um, one is Okinawa soba. So it's like soba, but Okinawans are like really big on pork. So, um, so there's kind of a pork broth, you know, base plus noodles, plus like, you know, slabs of like, you know, um, tender pork that has been like, you know, cooked for hours, um, with some like, um, fish cakes and some green onions and a little bit of ginger. And I just, I miss that a lot because I haven't found, I really have not been able to replicate that here. Right. <laughs> um, there's another thing that, uh, another dish, um, and it's very simple. It's called um, champuru, you know, and it's, it's, it's a stir fry, but there's something about the way it's done in Okinawa that just makes it taste so much better than like the way it's, it's tasted <laughs> the, the way, or the way I make it. So <laughs> That's um, I was going to say, like, how you make that? <laughs> I make it. I'm just like, you know, but I go thing. back. Yeah. And I'm like crying tears of joy whenever I go back and have, have those dishes. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm glad you get to go back. Um, I'm glad you have your memories and I'm glad that you've packaged all of your experiences, right, to helping others in the work that you do. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your work. Victoria, thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for inviting me, Lola. Thank you for joining me, Lola Adeyemo, as always, for these important conversations on the corporate world of work from the immigrant perspective. For more resources and upcoming events, please visit our website, www.immigrantsincorporate.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at Immigrants Incorporate. If you are on LinkedIn, please join the group Thriving in Intersectionality-Immigrants Incorporate America. There will be a new episode every week, so make sure you are subscribed to get notified. Please leave us a rating, leave a review, and I hope to see you next time. Thank you.